Hey guys, this is Ariana and welcome to All Things Good, a discussion-based podcast where we have important conversations about critical topics. This podcast is for any human who is trying to make their internal and external worlds a better place to live. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be black and growing up in rural, upstate New York, Sullivan County? On this episode, we meet with artists DJ and Michael Davis as they share how the Black Library, a library and community art space that is focused on celebrating and educating Black history and culture, came into existence. We also discuss the intricacies of racial dynamics and how they can influence one's trajectory in life and how art and culture can be the first thing to shift the narrative of an area. I hope you enjoy. Today on the podcast, All Things Good, I have two very special people here that come from the same area that I am from in upstate New York. I have DJ and I have Mike here. Hey guys. Hey, Hey, Ari. Thank you for having us. I'm like so happy. This feels so full circle to have you guys here. Yeah, for sure. We go back a little while and this is an awesome opportunity to have us on the platform. So thank you. You're welcome. For anyone who doesn't know about DJ Art King or Michael Davis, aka Mike Mars, they are two very talented artistic individuals that I have known from Sullivan County. Because you guys are from Monticello. Yeah. 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 I I mean, I I bounced around a little bit, but yeah, I'm from, from Monticello as well. You guys are doing something really special. I've seen the Black Library. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, we um, started working on the the Black Library last year, 2022. That was last year, right? Yeah, this year, 2023. It's been a long year. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Making sure. (laughs) You know, time's moving a little bit strange, but... um, Yeah, yeah. just a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, we started working on the Black Library last year. It's kind of been a concept for a few years now. What is the concept? So the Black Library is a library and community art space that's focused on celebrating and educating on Black history and culture. So we have a pretty large collection of Black literature and that the community, of course, will have access to. I mean, it's it's pretty much community sourced the community either bought or already had the books and then donated them to us. We have probably about five or 600 books right now. And then on top of the the library aspect, since Michael and I are both artists, we have a lot of art forward programming that we're going to be doing out of the space and at various other locations around Sullivan County, you know, like a photo club, artist talks, artist workshops. And we have studio spaces that are in the building as well in our location that'll be occupied by local artists. I actually heard about that. That is so cool that you guys have that space. And I also didn't realize you were planning those different programs that you're going to go into the community for. It's almost like art enrichment, it sounds like. Right. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the times art and culture is the first 
a first thing to to kind of shift the narrative, I guess, of an area. So that's kind of that's kind of how we're doing things. That's the the mindset we're going into it with is, is that you know art and culture can rejuvenate uh, an area, so to speak. Yeah. Where did this come from? Where did this sprout? Came from actually just funny because that's that's how you and I met is at at the studio that I had in in Hurleyville because Mike would come by do photo shoots in there he would like hang out while I was painting and then I started amassing like a collection of black literature and we had started talking about the books that were there but that is that is how the idea came about was just that's Mike and, I and stuff you know it's crazy that day that I met you is also a special day because that's the day that I wanted to get digitals done to submit to modeling agencies. This was like in the very beginning of me deciding to make this whole career transition. And I was still learning my way and doing everything. And that was one of my first steps that I took towards moving in this direction. And that's also the same moment that I met you. And in that space, is where this black library originated. And then now we're here where this podcast is an extension of what I was working towards when I met you and kind of similarly for you guys also. Yeah. That's that uh, full circle moment that you were talking about <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> Literally. Yes. Yes, it really feels so full circle. Yeah, so I mean, it, oh, sorry. <laughs> that's okay. I think it's just crazy how life works sometimes. And sometimes it's so nice taking a step back, looking at your life, and just being in awe because it's like, wow, all these connections made sense, but it doesn't make sense until you're ready to understand it. Right. Right. Yeah, I was always like a firm believer in like not believing in coincidences. Um, really? Yeah, I don't necessarily believe in too many things as a coincidental incident. I think that, you know, things are kind of meant to happen, even if they're insignificant in the time. You know, I feel like sometimes even in the sense of getting caught up or being late or getting stuck in traffic or something like that, that could have possibly like saved your life down the road somewhere quite literally. So, you know, I'm always kind of optimistic in that sense. And I don't necessarily believe that people meet or interact by chance, especially like the amount of people on the planet. Um, yeah, you're right. You're right. Oh, my word. There's so many people on the planet. Yeah, it's like, you know. <laughs> And then there's so many people like right here in our hometown that there's people that I pass by every day that I don't even know. So the people that you do interact with, I think, I think there, there is some sort of real meaning, whether it be like cosmic or spiritual, what have you, but I believe it. Hmm. Me too. How did you get the idea from the black library as just a concept into the next stages? I mean, the concept had came from, Mike and I talking about the books that I had in the space and it kind of started as like a, Hey, we should maybe start like a black book club. And then from there it was like, maybe there should just be a black library. Mm. That was kind of where the, the idea or like concept had stopped it was just like, there should be a black library. Like that's just full of black literature, kind of like the regular library. 
And then some time had passed. I was in school finishing my degree and the, um, the creatives rebuild New York grant had came along. Like the, uh, the applications were open and I had talked to tall at the Hurleyville performing art center. And I was kind of like, Hey, like we should, we should submit for this creative rebuild New York thing so I can, you know, have a nice salary as an artist. And then I was kind of like being like a little jokey about it, but then he got like super serious and was like, no, that's really important. We should do that actually. And he thought it was a really good like grant winning idea. And we kind of just expanded it from just being a library to also being like a community art space on top of being a library. And we applied for that. And then, um, yeah, we, we ended up winning the grant. And that process was from like 2020 into early 2022. Wow. I mean, excuse me, 2021 into early 2022. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I met you, DJ, I think December-ish 2021. That was right at the beginning stages. I think it was earlier than that. It was 2020, I believe. That was 2020? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Why is time doing this? It was like <laughs> yeah. it was, I was taking a break from school. So I had like a lot of free time and I, I needed a space to paint. DJ, mm-hmm. do you want to explain a little bit about what type of art you do? And then Mike, if you want to do that after, just because I think that's really important for people to understand just how special the Black Library is going to be. I, I started out as kind of like a traditional artist, I guess, just in terms of like what I was doing, not really in terms of like learning or anything like that. I started out as like a portrait artist and I just kind of learned from doing, I would, I would draw a portrait every single day. And then I would, um, if I wasn't drawing, then I would go on YouTube and watch people draw. So like, that was kind of how I was, would pick up on things. Um, how old were you when you started doing this? Uh, 17. Okay. And that was kind of like when Instagram had started to get a little bit popular too, was when I was 17. So I'd seen someone on Instagram and I was like, oh my God, they're like a great portrait artist. I want to do that. And then I started drawing every day, kind of just in in a weird competitive sense, because I, I wanted to be as good and then better than them at drawing portraits. So that's kind of what got me into drawing portraits. So I was just drawing every day. And then after a while, I had started to feel like I was not being very creative yeah, mm-hmm. I'm art, but like I'm, I'm just copying photos. But also in the back of my mind, I knew that I had built like a really strong technical foundation, which uh. was really important. So then I went to SUNY Sullivan, which is actually how I met Mike in the graphic design program, because I was in my head, I was like, I want to know how to do everything in within the arts just so I can have a, a really strong foundation. So I went for the graphic design program just so I could learn digital art making, basically. So that's really interesting. You chose a degree, not so much because you were already good at it and you wanted a degree in it, but more of like you wanted to expand and grow and challenge yourself. Yeah, pretty much, because I, I never had used any computer programs like Photoshop or Illustrator or or anything of that nature. So I kind of just went in there a little blind just so that I could have those skills. There was never really a point where I wanted to be a graphic designer, but I just wanted that, that knowledge base pretty much. That was a really smart move to do in your life. Cause it just made you that much more knowledgeable and everything. 
but that's where you guys met in the graphic design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we met in the uh, the graphic design program, which shout they, out to Mark Lawrence. Yes, shout out <laughs> Mark Lawrence for sure. Is that your professor? Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, he taught like most of the computer graphics classes and some some of the physical art making classes too. But yeah, he was like the the head of the, the graphic design program. But that's also where I picked up photography as well was uh, they they made us take photography courses and I had never done photography either. So it's kind of just like another damn. thing that happened there. Because <laughs> you're such a good photographer. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then from there, I had took time. And this is like so one thing about me is like. I'm going to take my time when I need it. <laughs> so I've taken so many breaks from school and people are always like, Oh, don't take a break. Cause if you take a break, you're never going to go back. And I was just always like, that's not how my brain works. Like what I want to do, I'm just going to like go ahead and do it. And then if it's meant for me to go back, I'm going to go back. And I, I always <laughs> went back and finished my degrees. So like, I just always would need my time, like kind of in between, um, so I took time off and then I ended up going to purchase. It's actually funny because in that time between when I was taking time off, I had a dream that I'd, I'd like never liked painting or like wanted anything to do with painting. But in that in that like break in 2017, I had a dream that I was a painter and like had became a very successful painter. Like I was at like a gallery opening meeting, like wow. a lot of other like really successful artists and then i woke up and i went and bought some paint and started painting <laughs> that and then that's also kind of when i knew that i was going to go to purchase and when i went to purchase that i would do the painting program there since i didn't know how to paint i went to the to purchase majored in painting and drawing and photography and that was kind of a long build up but that's kind of just how i started in the arts and then purchase really helped me develop creatively because I already had a, a really strong foundation. And since I had already had an associate's degree, I didn't need to take any like foundational art courses where they like teach you how to draw or teach you like any of the, the, the technical the basics. Yeah. Only for painting th did I really need that. And strangely enough, painting was very similar to like working in Photoshop painting. So like I picked up on it on that pretty quickly as well. By that time, you already knew how to use Photoshop. Yeah. And like, I don't know why, but oil painting was just like really similar in that way to me. And then <laughs> kind of coming from drawing as well, like I'd use oil it. painting. Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's weird. I don't really know exactly how to explain it. But the way that paint works in Photoshop, like works pretty similar to similarly to oil paint. So my time to purchase was the first time that I even like picked up oil paint. And I picked it up pretty quick. And they just helped me develop so much as an artist at purchase, like the professors there are so incredible. Sharon specifically, like, I don't know why, but we like gravitated toward each other. And I took so many of her classes i actually had her for like back-to-back -back classes the classes are four hours so i would have her for like eight hours straight one semester and she just like would go so hard on me and like took me under her wing and i like developed so much like conceptually and creatively and that really helped me start making the paintings that i make now which are kind of like about i guess like race relations in the mm -hmm. u.s 
but also outside of the U.S. as well, because I, I made some paintings about Haiti also. But I kind of just after some time wanted to make like a home within the fine art space for well, for black people, but like for specifically for people that like really understand like street culture and like popular black culture and like make a space that that normally only exists in like film and like music because a lot mm. of the times those are like the two art forms that we're like restricted to is like film yeah. and music and i feel like there's not a lot of representation for what i try to talk about specifically within like the fine art space because a lot of my work has to do with like street culture and violence and like living in like urban environments but like really specifically like in in the hood trying to make art that um really like resonates with people that exist in those environments completely and you grew up in an urban environment i've grown up all over the place so like i've lived in really really bad areas like in albany or the place i the places that i lived in in albany were pretty pretty bad I feel like Monticello is like a, a very strange middle ground where it's like not that bad, but it's like not that great either. It's like very weird, just kind of like in the mm -hmm. middle. And then I lived in, in Jeffersonville and wow. I kind of moved <laughs> from Albany to Jeffersonville. Like I spent like a year, probably less in Monticello. So it was like Albany and then like six months to a year in Monticello and then Jeffersonville. Wow. It was like the strangest it was just like a huge culture shock. It was oh, that's, like crazy. That's, that is so crazy. Mike, what about you? Can you share a little bit about your journey of being an extraordinary photographer? I wouldn't say extraordinary, but uh, <laughs> no. Um, I would. I'm always. I'm always down to hype you up, and <laughs> and like I I love all your accolades. My favorite is the President Obama with Architectural Digest. That's my that's my favorite. Well, I didn't I didn't actually shoot that. Um, I, I did some retouching for that, but yeah, I wasn't even. In the I know I just the retouching. I think yeah. that's like incredible. <laughs> um, thank you. And we will use the word extraordinary for sure. <laughs> um, I mean, I uh, I kind of started taking photos in high school. So my gene, junior year into my senior year that summer, I um, got a job at Mountain Foods, for those that know, with the Jewish supermarket downtown here in Monticello. <laughs> I worked there and literally for the purpose of buying a camera, saved up every paycheck for like three weeks to a month and took that money to Walmart and bought a Nikon D40. And it was like one of the proudest moments of my life. I'm proud of you too for that. That's that's hard work. I mean, yeah, it was just um, it, it was probably like one of my first like bigger purchases like as a teenager, and because you know that camera was still fairly expensive when it came out for a 16 year old. That was kind of like the start of things. I ended up photographing my friends my whole senior year. I never took any art classes in high school. So I, you know, didn't really have any like artistic exposure for those four years. But I grew up, you know, a pretty artistic person. I would like 
draw and illustrate as much as possible when I was home as a kid. Eventually just kind of stopped doing that due to being outside and stuff. Photography was kind of like an artistic escape for me while in high school or, you know, those last years. It was something that, that, that kind of snowballed and developed for me as far as like just making a local name and getting attention uh, due to like the whole social media wave that was starting to become ever so popular at the time with MySpace and then transitioning into Facebook at that time. So um, I ended up supplying people with a, like a lot of profile pictures and stuff. So that got around. So you just skipped art classes in high school and you were like straight commissioning work. <laughs> You're like, I, I don't need these formal trainings. You were just no. like so into it. Yeah. At that point, it was just really about having fun with it more so than anything else. Like I, mm. I didn't even think about like it being a career or actually like source of income or anything at that point. It was really just more so about documenting life for myself and the people around me. Like being a teenager and like <laughs> enjoying it. Yeah, that's really, and honestly, that's kind of what it's still about for me in a lot of ways. Yeah, like I just, I enjoy documenting this area and my friends and taking photos for people when I can, you know. Uh, it shows. Yeah, it's it's like a, it's, it's super rewarding. And there's like a real deep aspect to it for me. It's like really kind of creating like a sense of like immortality out of like a moment in time, you know. Mm-hmm. And not only that, just like having a visual component to it. There's so much power that can come from capturing a certain moment in time. And there's so many different ways it can be perceived for future generations. But it's also preserved for future generations. So it's like photos are how we have a lot of visual reference for like almost anything in human history or American history, I would say. It's how we can communicate things from one side of a globe to another before the internet age and all that. So I think that there's there's a lot of power in what we do. And I think that sometimes it's taken lightly, um, but, you know, sorry to get off on that. Thing. No, I think that's, I think that's really important in explaining just, you know, that supports the significance behind what you do. But uh, that was definitely me asking that question. So that's what you did throughout high school, documenting your friends and everything. Right. Shortly after that camera broke, um, like shortly after I graduated, that camera broke and I was without a camera for like a year and a half, maybe two years. In that time, I actually started going to Sullivan and failed out of there. I failed out due to lates. I was uh, late to class too many times, which that was a very strange. That's you could get you, you could be dropped from the school yeah. because of too many lates. Yeah. So, well, I the, it was like a huge technicality where. Um, to be fair, I'm not even going to say the name of the professor, but uh, I don't think he liked me much. Um, to be honest, mm. yeah, he definitely he definitely didn't didn't like me a whole lot. And um, I'm sorry that happened. No, no, it's cool. It, it, it's like that sometimes. For what reason, I really couldn't tell you, but you know, it'd be like that sometimes. Um, so he ended up telling me that I was late so many times, which is funny because I got a ride from somebody that I was in class with and that person didn't fail the class. 
<laughs> like, how am I late too many times? But we're in like literally we're walking through the door at the same time. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, so I, I lost that appeal or whatever. I lost my financial aid due to that and was out of school for about a year, which was actually like one of the best things that ever happened to me because I was able to actually focus on academics when I went back to school. It was kind of like 13th grade. The first time I was in college, I was kind of like forced into it to begin with. That's the funny thing. I ended up in the graphic design program because I was looking at a list of majors and that one seemed like that was possibly the funnest. It was between (laughs) that and communications. So um, I was like, uh, how can I enjoy myself the most? And that's kind of what it led to. And (laughs) glad I did that. But um yeah so uh, I acquired another camera, just the body of a Nikon D ninety from like some used electronics store. That's when I like started to kind of really take the art a little more seriously and take um the idea of creating an actual career out of it a little more seriously. I remember kind of making this like declaration when I was at uh, my homie Briar's house the night that I bought the camera, uh, it was, uh, myself, Briar, uh, my homie Jordan and my homie really, I was explaining that I was going to take it seriously and get into videography and do all this, these wild things with it. And at this point I was an unemployed kid with a used camera and maybe like two pieces of glass, uh, <laughs> on my homie's futon with big dreams. Thank God, but uh, I, I did kind of make a way out of this. You definitely did. It's kind of crazy seeing the path that leads you to where you are now. Not only are you able to do something that you enjoy, because you said that's what's so important to you, but you're able to make it profitable, but also take you to places that you probably weren't really expecting to go. <laughs> oh, yeah, like absolutely. I can totally credit photography and my work with Sleep on a Plane Productions for bringing me to a bunch of different destinations that uh, not only, you know, was I not necessarily expecting to go, but I wasn't expecting to go there with the objective of taking photos professionally. So I think that that's super dope and it's um, definitely a blessing for sure. Something that I absolutely once dreamed of doing. And, you know, I never really had like, a, you know, you said things like when you were a kid, like I want to be the president or an astronaut or sometimes I would say doctor. My mother was a surgical technician, so I would say things like that sometimes. And, um, you know, you, you just really didn't have it figured out yet. It just sounded like the thing that you were supposed to do when you're an adult. But once I got to a point where I was really supposed to seriously start thinking about it, I had nothing. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't really aspire to do anything career-wise. I just know that I wanted to travel. Like whatever mm. I did, I, I kind of wanted to travel in my line of That's, work. That was like part of your requirement for the universe? Yeah, I guess. Like, <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I just, I always wanted to travel and been to Hawaii about three times. I was recently in the Bahamas. I frequently do work in LA. I was in Montana once a couple years ago, which was very interesting. 
Oh, I want to go to Montana so bad. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a wild place for sure. It's such a it, you really feel how small humans are compared to nature once you're mm. in the area. For sure. We were like right on the edge of right on the edge of Yellowstone and Big Sky. And I was like the first time I saw a moose in real life and that's <laughs> how much bigger they are than like sprinters and SUVs and I'm like no. Oh, no, no. Moose are huge. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was really ominous. Wow. I I can't you know what is very interesting about both of your stories? What's that? Like you guys are so supported by the universe. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think that's why we resonate on our own kind of particular frequency. It's very strange how similar kind of like BJ and I are, uh, both in like temperament, but also an in interest of things. Like we kind of- Oh my gosh. Like, I never realized how close your temperament was until right this second. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, you guys are so similar. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely, uh, it's it's strange. And then we do this thing where we like coordinate colors of outfits on some like Power Rangers shit. It's really weird. Like, <laughs> like we'll wear like the same color or the same color scheme, like completely. And you don't plan like, it? No, no, we're not that. It's, it's, it's not like we're not calling each other in the morning to figure it out. Like it's, it's really strange. Look, I'll never forget the day when we both had green pants on with the same color shoes <laughs> and the same top. Yeah, I know. Like, and it's the, it's the random stuff like that. Like, who even wears green pants to begin with? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it was like I hopped in the car and looked you up and down and was like, so. <laughs> we did it the other day. We, we kind of did it uh, the, the day of the Spectrum interview. When uh, we had the Eddie Adams workshop, all of those photos from that day, we have the same color scheme. <laughs> yeah. And it looks like it's coordinated. Like we, we went through some sort of like hair and makeup or styling, but no, it's just straight out the bedroom. <laughs> I love that for you guys. So you guys have been getting some good press for your black library. You were getting the word out. Cause I, I know my mom, it loves the Black Library, and she tells me every time she goes to one of your meetings, and she's been updating me on your progress and everything like that. And you guys are officially in your building, right? Yeah, yeah. We um, when did we get the building? Um, uh, we officially got March. It the last week of March. Right. Yeah. Because yes. Because nine thousand things all happened at the same time <laughs> yeah that was such an interesting time for us yeah uh just the the following days after actually the following day after we we did the press release and got the uh keys for the building i had to leave for a trip to hawaii and i think two or three days following that uh dj welcomed the the birth of his newborn daughter mm. um, so it was very, it was a very busy and intense week for both of us. We were both handling things for the library, me remotely 12 hours away, DJ on the ground, but still, you know, having to be attentive as a, a father in that situation. And it was pretty hectic, but we got through that pretty well. Can you tell me a little bit about the building? Is there a building history and where is it located? Yeah, it's, um, well, the building is located at 418 Broadway in Monticello. 
formerly it was the key bank and then before that it was also what is it called the first union bank yeah. or the first national union bank first national union bank uh, we'll put it all together first national <laughs> union uh, <laughs> but um yeah, it's pretty much like always been a bank, it seems like. And then uh, the key bank shut down, I believe, in 2017. From there, they've just been shut down for a couple of years. The land bank had acquired the building. And that's who we, we have our lease through is through the land bank. I think that's a great sign that the Black Library is in the same building as all these banks were. I feel like that is a good sign for wealth that is like to come yeah and it was also our first choice in landing a space um, when we were just kind of conceptualizing what we might want or need out of a space that was kind of like one of the first places we actually thought of if not the first okay so it checked all the boxes yeah definitely it was just like a, per a perfect space we just have the first floor but that first floor is around 4,600 square feet. And right now we're kind of just doing uh, light touch-up work, you know, like paint, changing the floors out since we're going to have artist studios in there. Um, and some of the carpet was like really bad. And yeah, that's kind of like the first phase and getting the bathrooms up to par because the bathrooms are <laughs> there. They're not well. Yeah, um, from like 94 or something. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> Okay, so time for new bathrooms. And sure. when you guys are opening, do you guys plan on having regular open hours similar to the way a regular library would be? Or do you think it will have more of following an enrichment schedule where it'll be open certain days of the month? I think we'll we'll have hours that are pretty similar to um, the normal library. We probably won't be open as long as a normal library, because I feel like they open up pretty early and they close around <laughs> like eight or nine o'clock. But we'll we'll have some pretty regular hours, though. More than likely, our artists who are in house using the studios will have specialized hours, basically where they they'll have access. They'll have special access while we're closed. Okay. You know, the way we're talking about this and about certain times being open and having a, a space, a studio space for artists, it just has me thinking about, number one, how incredible, incredible it is to have a space like this for artists and to have a resource with Black literature and everything like that. But I feel like people who are not from Sullivan County don't really understand certain aspects of this just to like paint a larger picture of just like how incredibly special a dedicated art space would be or the black literature and i looked up some facts about sullivan county and i just feel like it's it's really interesting because definitely like pitch in wherever feels good for you guys but sullivan county i feel like is such a unique space in the world or New York State. I looked online for the Sullivan County Partnership for Economic Development, just to credit my source, and it says the five largest ethnic groups in Sullivan County are white, non-Hispanic, which is 71.5%, and white Hispanic is 8.29%, 
black or African-American non-Hispanic is 7.4%, and then other, 5.24%. So I feel like people don't understand, like, it's not just a black library, because a black library anywhere would be amazing, but also in Sullivan County, because it's a predominantly white area. And also thinking about it, how you said it's located on Broadway in Monticello, I feel like that in itself says so much because anyone who's lived in Sullivan County or in that area for a while knows that we've had our economic uh, rundowns and, you know, to be able to be on Broadway and to be a business to establish something is like a pretty big deal. And the resources, because I know you mentioned about the Hurleyville Performing Arts Center, which they're doing amazing things, but especially before that, like thinking about this area, we've been so in need for any of this, the, the diversity, the enrichment, just new businesses, new ad- endeavors. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was not much here uh, growing up, not much really, really to do in terms of like uh, anything outside of school or hanging around at Walmart or something. And then especially when COVID hit and they started like taking down basketball hoops, like then it was like, really like, wow, what is there to do at all? You know? Yeah. Your perspective is a hundred percent valid. And the crazy thing is that you technically in, well, maybe not Jeffersonville because that's the whole concept of Sullivan County too. Like there's Monticello, which is like a little mini city or like a really big town. But then Jeffersonville or where I went to high school, which was in Gramsville, it's like these little itty bitty rural towns that like, so yeah, there's like nothing to do in general in this general area because the movie theater closed down in Monticello like however many years ago and like there's just literally nothing but then when you get to those other little towns it's even more desert like you know yeah I mean I think like uh for like Jeffersonville Gremsville I think is even smaller than Jeff and Jeff is already like population like 300 or like something around there yeah those areas there's nothing to do but pull some grass out of the ground and feed it to a cow. Like yeah. that's, that's like literally it. There's there's <laughs> nothing else to do. <laughs> so yes, that's where, so growing growing up in Grantsville, I looked it up and it says the population is 488. And like that's my neighbors had horses and cows. That's literally all there was. But I looked up Monticello and you guys have 7,441 people in Monticello. So uh, uh, a little bit, a little bit more. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. And I think Monticello is the most diverse like, village in, in the entire county, I believe. Oh, yeah. 100%. I, I looked at the statistics on that. And you guys have 47% white with 23% black and 16% two or more race. Yeah, the major the minorities hold the majority here, technically speaking. Yeah, um, that's like the Im- importance of having a space like that, like like what we're doing in a village like Monticello, within a county like Sullivan County, because it's like there's 
so much strange like racial tension in Sullivan County and, and then to be living in Sullivan County, but you live in the most diverse village in that County, it can get like super strange. Yeah. Um, and what do you guys each identify as? What's your ethnic background? So I'm black and white. My mother is black and my dad is white. So I'm biracial and I mean, that's just kind of what I tell people most of the time. I just say that I'm black and white. Okay. I thought you had some type of Latina or Hispanic background. You don't? You're just black and white? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just I'm just black and white. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Me too. But everyone thinks that I'm Spanish, but I'm also black and white. <laughs> yeah. Most people most people do think I'm Hispanic in, in some uh, capacity. Uh, a lot of people just come up to me speaking Spanish, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's happened since I was a child. <laughs> that's wild. Um, I am a Guyanese American. My parents immigrated from Guyana back in the eighties, and my mother is Indian of of Indian descent, and my father is black. Wow, so cool. What was it like culturally growing up? Did you guys both have a cultural influence in your home? Yeah, um, it was actually kind of interesting for me. It was a bit of like duality. I had um, obviously heavy West Indian influences at home, culturally, uh, the music, the food, dialect, everything. But, you know, as soon as I walked outside, then I had to be American or as American as possible, especially within the school system here. So, um, yeah, it was it was definitely a strong mix of of. The two. Actually, I joke. I had. I tell people I kind of had to learn to be American, like at my friends' houses or in school. Um, oh my God. <laughs> it's, it's a funny thing, but it is kind of true. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I would. I would say that my cultural influences my mom and my my family. They're from, or they were like raised down south uh, in Alabama. Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much my my cultural influence, and I, I guess my friends as well, uh, primarily my family. Okay, because for the longest time I said I was Polish, Irish, Native American, and African American because that's all I really knew. I recently did the ancestry DNA a few years ago, and for the first time ever, I learned more about my Black culture. I think it says I'm nineteen percent Nigerian, so that's like super cool, but. For me, culturally, I'm basically just American because both sides of my family have been in the U.S. for so long, like so many generations. And then it was interesting. I know you guys said you got your culture from your friends, but from my friends, just because of where I grew up being predominantly white with a 1% minority rate, I actually had a very interesting upbringing where culturally I ate, dressed, talked went to church the same way my friends did but then I had friends that weren't allowed over my house because I was black and it was just such an interesting dynamic growing up because it's like yes I knew I was black and I knew I was mixed and everything like that but it didn't make sense growing up because how how come you weren't allowed over when there's nothing different about us but maybe my skin color or my hair that's super unfortunate and that's the strange thing too because even in monticello like in elementary school like some of my best friends were white we we didn't necessarily see things that way and our parents 
never like indoctrinated us to think any sort of type of way about chilling with someone of the opposite race. That's the part I was jealous about growing up and going to Tri-Valley and seeing Liberty Falls Rig Monticello because everybody was just like friends for the most part. And I was like, oh, that'd be nice. I remember sitting at the lunch table one time and it was the person I was dating in high school and it was their friend. And they just literally said, I would never have sex with a girl if she had sex with a black guy before. I I still think about that comment and it's just Yeah, it's wild. I that's <laughs> see that yeah. is kind of like the racism that we dealt with though. The kind of like passive indiscriminate racism like the um I'll never date a black guy kind of racism like empty your pockets when you're leaving the house kind of racism like <laughs> true story though it's not funny but it is a true story i used that like, my pockets checked by like my friends mothers like when we left what the like, heck yeah are you kidding me no i wish i was um mm. i've had like a handful of experiences like that definitely being way too young and then kind of again being in a place that had a decent amount of black people that kind of controlled the narrative on what was cool seeing the appreciation of rap and hip-hop music and culture change before my eyes was something very interesting for an area like this <laughs> it was super super weird to see the same people that used to talk crazy or make fun of me for listening to hip-hop or rap music become like yeah. one fans of wu-tang <laughs> like things like that i don't know totally to for context for everybody listening sullivan county is basically at the base of the Catskill Mountains. So we're about two hours north of New York City, but I, I would dare say Sullivan County is like when you really start to get like rural, rural, because south of us is Orange County, and then it goes to Rockland, and then you get into Westchester. So I feel like we're on that brink, especially in Monticello compared to Gramsville or Jeffersonville, these other places, I feel like it's a very interesting dynamic in Sullivan County because we have like a little touch of these pockets of, I want to say diversity, but also at the same time, it's kind of, it is a pocket. Like they're, they're in this pocket, there's Spanish people. In this pocket, there's uh, black people. So we have these little pockets, but yeah. Just to give some context to everybody, and uh, Gramsville, where I went to high school, was the southernmost community in the Catskill Park. So racial dynamics for all three of us were very interesting. <laughs> yeah, to put it lightly. <laughs> I, w- I was literally thinking about this, coming into this, knowing we were going to have this conversation. I was really thinking about what that must have been like for you. And then also how our, like my experiences. So I grew up in that really rural area. And when I went there, there was like a 1% minority rate. I just looked up the statistics and there's actually like 13% Hispanic population now, but you know, it's been 10 years. So that's good to see it's diversifying a little bit, but graduated with 99 people. So we're both from the same county and we probably have very different upbringings, but then we also experienced racism and racial tensions. I wonder how similarly and how different it was. 
for for you and I, probably very similar, and then probably completely different for Mike and Monticello. Like being in Jeffersonville and going to Sullivan West, they are like blatantly and openly racist <laughs> and like don't care about not being racist out loud. So and and I just I have an inkling that they're not really like that at Monticello because it's like it's not so kind of like one sided in terms of population because it's like you were saying it's like it's like one percent. That's well, like it, it was it was definitely a, a bit of a strange dynamic. Like there was um definitely a lot of like passive or like indiscriminate racism. But you know what was going on for sure. But then, you know, there were a few people that were just blatant racist. A lot of people did keep it to themselves. If you were blatant racist, you were probably, you know, to be frank, a white kid that can fight good. Uh, (laughs) That was like like the only, and there was, you know, maybe four of them. Uh, So, you know, that there wasn't too much of that. There was like a little like, you know, like pseudo racist, like, crew click thing that went around in high school for a little while, but I'm pretty sure that that phased out very fast. And, you know, we, we had the, the luck of having a dynamic where there was a lot of black and brown people in our school. Like there was a lot of black and Spanish people. Most of our basketball team was black and Spanish. Most of the, the, the kids that, you know, pretty much were cool were black and Spanish. Um, you know, so that was like a thing that that kind of like, you know, gave you a sense of um of like pride or even having a bit of unity. Monticello was crazy though. Don't get me wrong; like there was a lot <laughs> of stuff going on. Like there was a lot of stuff going on. You know, things that I was always... happening in a high school or a middle school. <laughs> um, so, from my perspective, going to Tri Valley, I was always a little jealous of Monticello, Liberty, Fallsburg, and. I think that's because you guys had more diversity and uh, like Monticello, Liberty, Fallsburg. It's like they were the more diverse, but I also always was like taught that like you guys were like kind of like bad kids or whatever. And like, I wonder how much of it, it's just like when you're in a more urban environment and kids are closer together, that kids will be kids or how much of it was true. Or how much of it is just, like, racist ideas that were, like, tried to be taught? I don't know. I feel like, because there was a lot of that at Sullivan West, I I feel like it's probably leaning towards just, you know, racist ideologies that were passed down. Because Sullivan West, when I went there, had, like, 12 times the amount of fights that Monticello had when I went to Monticello. Like, um. But also, you know, wait. Sullivan West had more fights than Monticello. I don't Is that know. What if, you said? I don't know if, like, on paper, if they had more fights, but I, I witnessed like more fights than okay. than I did at Monticello. Um, I was also involved in more fights at Sullivan West than Monticello, but that's like, you know, another story. But like, yeah, I, I feel like kids were fighting all the time at Sullivan West. To be fair. Yeah, I do think a bit of that, I would say a, a decent portion, large portion of that is just due to systemic indoctrination um, and painting the areas where, because, you know, there's nothing that really happens in Fallsburg. Fallsburg is actually a really, you know, sweet school. It's like 
their whole middle school and high school is under the same roof. It's a very small school. It's very well protected. It's mainly Spanish people. And, you know, that's just, um, that's the nature of that school. Almost nothing happens there. So, you know, to say that that school is bad is crazy. It's never been bad. Liberty, same thing for the most part. You know, I, I never really heard of anything like miraculous happening at Liberty high school. I didn't go there, but also, you know, I didn't know much bad to happen there. There was more of like a drug problem uh, there after a certain point or when we were like kind of in and coming out of high school. Uh, that's when like the opioid epidemic really started to hit there. So that was unfortunate. You know, Monticello, we we definitely had uh issue with violence, so to speak, here. There was a lot of quote unquote gang activity that was prominent when I was in high school, a lot of that kind of like calmed down after we graduated and they made a lot of shifts, how they operate in the school, both how they treat students and then how um, the safety staff engages the student population. A lot of that changed after like I graduated. So I couldn't really speak on that, but I know that, you know, people were getting cut in the face of razors when I was in school. But What was the I, reason behind the, the gangs? Was it race related? The gang thing is, um, in my opinion, that was something that overtook this area due to kids not having better things to do. That's exactly what happens when there's no, there's nothing for the youth to do in an area, because you literally will create this intangible thing out of nowhere and make up the rules for it and play as you go. And that's just really kind of what happened here. There were there were outside influences that moved to this area that were, um living that kind of lifestyle and due to the fact of everybody being here having nothing to stand for they fell for whatever at a particular point in time and it's just been passed on since then mm. um, you know and that's just the reality of things and you know most people that realistically were doing things that could be considered harmful or dangerous or things that that might have put somebody in prison Anybody that's been there will tell you that it's one of the dumbest things that they did. And it's like not a place that they wish to be currently. And not only that, but they'll, they'll advise the people that are out here making these decisions against what they're doing, uh, to be completely honest. It's, um, it's very interesting to see the, the, the kind of full dynamic of how that works. I have friends that are currently incarcerated. I have friends that just came home from prison. I have a friend that just celebrated his first birthday not in prison in about 11 or 12 years and you feel like a lot of that is related to a community not having enough resources or opportunities i mean yeah so so the way i see it is is most of the kids i wouldn't say most but yeah i could say most yeah most of the kids that ended up in these situations were one shining basketball, football, or track stars. So limiting access resources to facilities where they can spend their time to hone their skills, to uh, create a lifestyle out of the sport as opposed to something that they do part-time and then find themselves in the streets after school hours are over, that will make a difference in, in a young kid's life. Being able to be somewhere and surround yourselves by figures of positivity is completely different than going home to sometimes not always the best or conducive environments to growth or being in neighborhoods. 
that aren't necessarily filled with cases of success and people who rode life by the by the horns and did things their way and and you know it's you there's no there's no sense of inspiration here like what DJ and I are doing right now is really unprecedented and it's also coming from a generation that was probably the first that predominantly skipped all of that stuff you know um mm-hmm. we decided for ourselves at a certain point uh early on that there was probably going to be greener grass on the other side and we didn't have examples of people like that like i don't know anybody that's older than me that went to the same high school that i did that i look up to or can really look up to as an artist so like i think it's important for us to be those examples if we understand the dynamic and the trajectory of how things are laid out in this area sociologically and what kind of pipeline we have from high school to the center for discovery arc new hope walmart Shoprite, or scj like mm-hmm. that's literally what we have those six options well yeah so you're making an amazing point and that's kind of what i was trying to get at that like just to explain how profound what you guys are doing and in sullivan county we have a handful of major employers and it's like you either work for those major employers or like what are you you know what are you what what are you doing i don't know you know there are other jobs and other possibilities but it's tough and the fact that you guys can not only provide a space with the inspiration but you are literally you are the inspiration itself. Like you guys have done the things that you need to do. And not only that, but you are native. You have roots to this area and you can really be a shining leading example. Oh uh, yeah. I appreciate that for sure. That's, um, that's kind of what we're, we're trying to go for. And kind of show, show everybody else who around them is kind of like a local leader or somebody that they can look toward for inspiration or look toward for like opportunity or advice or knowledge or anything of that nature. Do you have any advice to people who maybe want to help accomplish similar things as you, but they might not have access to being a part of a project like you're in or don't have access to grant funding. Do you have any advice for how people might be able to encourage creativity and artistic freedom? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of it seems like it would be pretty tough to do. But my advice would really be like, if you have an idea, then just go present it to someone. The schools that are local to whatever area a person resides in that needs this advice would uh the local schools are always looking for more programs and and more things to do for their students, keep them engaged and and have them doing something positive and open more doors for their, for their students. So, you know, just presenting ideas to local school districts or figuring out what organizations are doing things in the community already and kind of going to them with ideas because they're, they're going to have funding. And if they don't have funding now, then they'll have funding like next year or in the next three months or six months or however much time. So just like getting to know your local population, getting to know your local organizations and the people that are in those organizations, and then getting to know people in your local school districts, and then just 
sharing ideas with with those three groups i think are are ways that somebody can kind of start building you know or building up to to some positive change in their area mm-hmm. without grant funding and without those types of things yeah i'd say just from like a basic level of i would say generally anything it's really important for people to execute you know like you don't have to you know it doesn't have to be absolutely perfect you don't have to be great to start i think the hardest thing for most people especially in this area i'm speaking on is to decide on what they're passionate about and create something of that it's like we kind of formulated this thing as we were going and we learned about all these things as we were going and there's no reason why anyone else can't do the same. We were not like particularly versed in the ins and outs of structuring businesses around nonprofits or building projects from the ground up on a grassroots level. We're learning literally as the days go by. And uh, I think it's just important for people to understand that there's no such thing as starting too small. It's all about incremental progress and just to go out and do it. You can't be afraid to fail at anything. There's never really failure. It's just a lesson in which you can apply corrections to your overall plan. So I think I was speaking very generally on it, but I think that that's kind of what people struggle with in this area. I can relate being from this area. Similarly, as to what you said about not really having any real life examples of artists one of my big inspirations was Gavin DeGraw because he was from Fallsburg and where I grew up was so remote that it has like nothing of its own, but I technically lived in the town of Fallsburg. So Gavin DeGraw and his like early music career, mm-hmm. seeing him be successful. And I went to high school with one of his cousins and that was a source of inspiration to me in a way. But my artistic expression now was all initiated just by actually starting and doing and bringing it back to what we were talking about in the beginning how i met you dj how you um, mike and i we were taking the digitals and it didn't have to be perfect but it was a step and it might not be what you're thinking it will be or something like that but i have it so often where i have art whether it's in the form of a post on social media or just pictures in my photo album but I just have art that is not being released. And I sometimes I think about that where I feel like that's the one thing holding me back, which is kind of like what you're saying, Mike, about like just doing it or putting it out there. Right. I mean, you know, it's, it's always a good idea to curate what you're releasing and kind of control the presentation overall of whatever that you want to present to people, but definitely what's important is to get it out. You know, it's important for if it's something that you like or love or passionate about, or feel that it's going to help or change somebody's perspective on something, then it's important for, for it to just be seen and absorbed. Not all art is going to be appreciated. I think, we found ourselves in this stage of like wanting not only like instant but always positive gratification due to like social media training and like what these apps devolved you know our art or presenting our art down to 
it's all about kind of like this this gratification factor and this reward system based off of dopamine and it's not about sharing art anymore it's about like how many people tap the screen when they saw it uh, arguably it's it's not a good place but it's the way things are right now so i think that it's just important for us to get out of our own heads when it comes to things like that and if we like it and share it and just let it exist you know once it's once it's out there just let it be because that's what it is anyways it's how art generally was presented and when it was presented you know the artist took a few steps back and whatever you felt or saw or whatever you liked or disliked it it didn't matter but it all mattered you know it was just it was how you perceived the piece and that's just how i think we should get back to understanding uh sharing our art or artistic expressions and, and creations do you think art will help heal the world i think EJ mentioned earlier it's it's definitely the first and sometimes the last line of defense for changing the perception or revitalizing an area. So, you know, I think art is always going to have a profound place in the world. And I would hope that it continues to change the world because, you know, we, we can't say that it, it hasn't been changing the world generationally because there's evidence of that. Tupac once said that, you know, he might not be the person that changes the world, but he'll be the person that does something that inspires the person that changes the world. And we have Kendrick Lamar today. So I think that that's like a shallow but great example of, of how art does actually change the world. And that statement becoming something that, you know, you fast forward a whole two or three generations of music and you have this person that is... um giving this offering in a similar way, but in a far more powerful and digestible manner uh, to the masses, not just to our people. So, you know, I think that we are in a space where, where art is changing the world, and I think it, it'll it continue to. It, there's a lot of things counteracting the things that art represents overall, I think, and, and the unity and of peace and of people and things like that. Overall, there's a lot of places on, on the planet that are just kind of skipping that right now, unfortunately. Mm. Yes, but you two are having a profound impact by working on this project and creating this space. So I thank you for that. Well, thank you. Thank you for having us. You're welcome. Uh, I ask the same question at the end of every podcast. Is there one specific piece of advice you would give to listeners today on how we can make all things good in the world? Hmm. I'm going to just say vibrate high. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we need to understand what's needed of us at this particular point in time in society as humans and humanity and also as we fit into the ecosphere of this planet and i think that we're in a very particular time and we should really be paying attention to a lot of things outside of our cell phones and getting out of our own heads I, that's that's just that's just where i'm at i think we just need to vibrate higher and be more aware of your neighbors and your surroundings 
Mm-hmm. And I mean, I was I was gonna say, kind of just spend time, uh, spend time with yourself. Just you know, learn yourself mm-hmm. and spend time looking in the mirror and. I guess like do everything possible to to try and kill your kill your ego because I feel like that's that's kind of where a lot of issues reside is is within people's egos and then two egos clashing where uh, no resolution can be made. Yeah, I like that. I I think those are both incredible pieces of advice, and thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any social media or anything that you would like to plug before we end our call today? Yeah. The the Black Library is on Instagram at the Black Library and NY. That is our Facebook as well, the Black Library NY. And our website is theblacklibraryny.com. Yeah, we have a, a, a lot of programs going on. July 1st, we have our agricultural weekend where people can come out, learn how to garden, learn how to grow food, and then learn how to prepare the food that they that they learn to grow. And um, we'll have some takeaways wow. as well so that people can, you know, start working on these things. Uh, that sounds so their own fun house. and so perfect. <laughs> And then we have a we have our meeting, of course, on Tuesday. Our our meetings are always the last Tuesday of every month, where you know we just invite the public to come, speak with us, learn about what we have going on, give suggestions, or sometimes we just you know sit there and and chat. But it's always a a fun time. Awesome. And yeah. Well, I'm so thankful to have you guys here, and I look forward to what the Black Library has to hold, and also just what the future has in store for all of us. I'm very excited about the future. Likewise. Me too. Yeah. And okay. congratulations to you on this whole endeavor, and I'll be tuning in. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. Bye. Well, thanks for everything, Ari. Thanks for having us. I hope you enjoy your weekend. Thank you. Wow. I just loved that conversation with Mike and DJ. Mike is one of the first people actually to act as a motivating force along my artistic journey inwards. I'm so thankful that he's in my life and that I was able to meet him and DJ too along my spiritual journey. I hope you walk away feeling inspired just like I have and capable of creating something as magical as Mike and DJ did with the Black Library. Be sure to subscribe to All Things Good wherever you are listening to stay connected to such motivational stories. Remember that you are capable of literally anything that your heart desires. Stay well and stay blessed.